to be celebrated by, you know, the, by black culture is to me the highest compliment you could possibly Why? receive. Because without without the black artists and and music, we this country would be no. like a you know uh, Irish um, river dance <laughs> show. Can you imagine what a nightmare? Oh God, help us, Lord, help us! No rhythm, no no emotion, nothing. Raw raw whiteness, like like bleach sugar. It'll give you a heart attack. Lead to dementia. Sandra Bernhardt has been an incendiary performer for several decades. She's now starring on Pose, playing the no-nonsense, keep-it-real nurse Judy, but this is just one of the many iconic shows she's been a part of. She had a role on the Richard Pryor show in the 70s, in Martin Scorsese's amazing film The King of Comedy in the 80s, and on Roseanne in the 90s, and on Will & Grace in the Double O's. She's a stand-up comedian, actress, singer, performer. She's just unstoppable. She helped make the late-night show visit a thing. Like, she used to take over the David Letterman show when he was on NBC at 1230. And on top of all that, this interview is special for me because Sandra was my second professional interview for Rolling Stone in 1994, and I was terrible that day. So I had to make up for flubbing on that day with a great interview today. Don't worry, I'll tell you all about what I did. It's the great Sandra Bernhard on Touré Show. So, do you remember our last interview? I don't remember our last interview, oh but don't God. take it personally. No, I don't. No, I don't. It was 1994. It was my first interview for Rolling Stone. Oh, yes. You were promoting yes. uh, bad excuse, excuses for bad behavior. Yes. It was my first interview, so I was a baby, right? So it was in written form. Yeah. Well, we met at this little cafe in the West Village. Yeah. And I had grown up as a teenager, a gigantic Letterman fan, Mm -hmm. watching him at 1230 on NBC, right? Right, where where he was at his best. He was at his best, much more irreverent than the CBS show. Experimental, fun. And you were the best guest he ever had. Thank you. You would come out and you would smoke and you'd try to kiss him and it would be just these (laughs) epic performances. Yeah. So as a baby reporter, I thought, well, this is who she is and she's going to show up as this epic person. Oh. And you showed up very professional. Like, Uh, hi, how are you? What do you need to know? So now I'm thrown off that she's not doing the persona thing. Uh-huh. And then, of course, like 20 minutes into it, I realized my tape recorder had stopped. Oh, so I was no. like, oh, God, I'm so embarrassed. You Can we go thing. back over the basic stuff that we started with? And you were so professional, like, sure. But I'm, like, dying inside. Oh, no. And then um, I'm thinking toward the end, like, well, a lot of young gay people are going to read this, so let me get her to speak directly to them. And I was like, so what advice do you have for them? And you started speaking to me. And I was like, no, 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 I'm I'm not gay, but I'm talking about others. And you said, oh, honey, when you figure it out, come find me. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, no. But you're still not gay. Still not gay. But, okay, good enough. But still an ally. Um, but Obviously. I, you know, but I, I – I remember that as like just just a total failure on my part, but you uh, were no, such professional. No, 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 it's fun. I, yeah, I, now I do remember. <laughs> just the struggling Isn't that crazy? young like, person. Well, you just do so many interviews and meet so many people. And it's like, I guess I'm the kind of person who just walks away and just goes right into the next thing. Yeah. And certain things, of course, you also become friends with certain people who interview you. Um, my friend Bill Zemi, who did a huge profile on me and – 1988, when I did Without You, I'm Nothing. I mean, we're still good friends. And, you know, not that we wouldn't have become good friends, but it's just funny because, you know, more then than now, you have an opportunity to, like, sort of connect with people in a way that it's – everything is just moving too quick now. Yeah. You are, as a performer, fearless. That's the word that I think of when I see you do stand-up, sing – go on a TV show, acting, whatever. Is that how you feel? Well, I had to be initially when I started out back in the 70s when I was, you know, really, I was was still 19, 20 years old and it was a completely different landscape in in our culture. So in order to like survive that world and also be able to get up and perform at one o'clock in the morning at the comedy clubs when there were 10 people left in the audience – you had to like really like d- dig deep into your reservoir 
and and yeah, and and just really just go for broke. And that's what I mean. I found I always find that, find that the most interesting anyway to like do things that are just sort of like really like just jumping off what you've just experienced, whether it's on the street or in a relationship or a conversation with somebody. I mean, to have it be that raw and real, why wouldn't you take advantage of that? Why would you want to go back up night after night and just do the same thing over and over and over again until you're just like numb and bored shitless? So yeah, I like to like, I like to throw myself into, you know, into the deep end and Usually it works out, you know. I mean, when you've perfected your skills as long as I have, you know what's going to be funny, you know what's going to work, and you know how to get yourself out of situations if they're, if they're not relating to them. I mean, I, fe- I find you incendiary and mm-hmm. powerful no Thank matter you. what the medium is. Yes. And the persona burns through whether it's, you know, talk show, comedy, whatever – I mean, what is that? Is it? Is there something inside of you that's like I'm dying to be on stage and like I'm just going to burn down whatever's in front <laughs> of me? Yeah, well, it's – yeah, it's that. And like, you know, depending on where we're at culturally, politically, of course, you want to like really, you know, bring your best intellect to the situation and also lift people out of the, the whatever state they're in. Um and it's always something. I mean, it's just it's just the it's just the the natural evolution of 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 our world and humanity that there's going to be really trying times, and then there's going to be little breaks, and then there's going to be some upbeat times. I mean, we're in a terrible time again, and it's, yeah. So I just try to go against whatever's happening. You know, I, I don't think people want to be beaten over the head with the obvious. And of course, I'll talk about things politically, but when I perform, I really want to like get people out of their doldrums, you know, and provide some relief for them and for myself as well. I mean, it's sort of selfish as well as wanting to really uplift people. I find you just so powerful as a performer. I wonder, like, what is your superpower as a performer that sort of gives you that oomph that that nobody else brings to the stage? Well, I think it's a a mindfulness about, you know, my life, excuse me, (coughs) and, um, and my health and my mental health and my physical, you know, well-being, I think that people in this business, it's very easy just to, like, get indulgent and lazy simultaneously. And mm. I've always just been hyper aware of that. I've just been always been drug-free. I mean, if I have one drink, it's unusual. I've never smoked. I just – I'm careful about my life because I think that in order to give – the most of yourself to the audience, you've got to be in prime shape. And I know that sounds sort of weird, but it's not unlike an athlete who has to constantly, you know, perfect their, you know, their, their physicality. And as a performer, you are very, it's very physical. Yeah. It's demanding. Traveling's exhausting. You know, you've got to be careful what you eat. And I know this all sounds very pedestrian and quotidian, but... I think those are the things that keep you balanced in life. And I don't run around telling people how to how to be. I just I just am and that's what works for me. You've been on several legendary iconic television shows. I want to talk about all of them, but let's start with your current uh role as uh Nurse Judy. Nurse Judy on Pose and yes. you just did Sometimes It Snows in April. And just the show is so real. It's campy, but it's so real. And especially the second season, which is so much about the AIDS crisis, is so real. And when they come to you, it's like, here's an extra dose of realness because, <laughs> you know, the nurse does not fuck around. Well, not only that, but, you know, I think it's kind of layer upon layer because obviously I was in, you know, the belly of the beast when it was actually happening. Yeah. Back in the 80s, I you know, lost many, many friends uh, during the AIDS crisis I can't say I was running around volunteering at hospitals or, you know, doing that, but I've certainly exposed to enough of what was happening to to be fully aware and and concerned. So, you know, to be able to like bring this character to life in a show that's about people who were marginalized but populated now by trans actresses 
who at the time would have been mocked or, you know, yep. pushed to the, you know, the, the margins or some of them murdered. I mean, it's yep. not that they still aren't, but it's a different world. And in those ensuing 30 years, the world has really come to a place no one could have ever imagined in terms of acceptance and openness. And I think it's incredible. So it's it's a funny time to look at and look back at and 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 have having been there and having watched it all unfold to be a part of it is um is it's a it's a phenomenon that no one could have ever predicted or imagined. I mean, I think about you on that show as world weary and you know dry and powerful and this sort of backstop of the emotion like honey i know things are horrible but somehow we're going to get through right and like one of these moments that stands out for me you and uh pray tell billy porter uh settled in next to each other at a funeral and you said something like this is my 400th and yeah. he was like i stopped counting and right. i was like I mean, it just blew me away as somebody who's not been in that moment that way. Like, oh, my God, like, that is so painful. Well, I mean, I certainly never had experienced it from that perspective. When my friends died, it was horrible. But I can imagine if somebody is, you know, in a hospital day after day and not even knowing everybody who's dying but watching people die like a plague, which it was – you become inured in a certain way and do develop a sense of humor to survive. Otherwise, you can't go in there every day and face it. So that's what's so great about the show and the character. I know you've been doing Sometimes It Snows in April in your own work for a long time. Yeah, long before Prince died. It was so powerful to see you do that on the show. What did you you do as an actor to prepare for that moment, to bring the bluesiness, the pain, the pathos, and everything? Well, you know, you go in and you, you of course, pre-record because that's every, you know, as you know, every every musical number in a show is pre-recorded. So I got into that headspace when I was recording the song so that I knew when I actually performed it in front of the camera that it would be there vocally and, and performance-wise. And, you know, it's just, it's connected to everything. It connected to, you know, of course, I thought of Prince and that tragedy and then you're looking in, in, in front of you at people that are, you know, in the hospital. And, I mean, it's just what you do, you know. And it's, 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 it's like eating a, a rich dessert. You don't have to pretend that, that the richness is there. It's just there for you. Yeah. The song is amazing. I, I drew on all the, the times I performed it live, you know, as, as a second encore. Um, and... It was just – it was a no-brainer, you know, and it's just so great that, you know, that they gave me that showcase. So take me back to the beginning. You're on the Richard Pryor show, mm-hmm. which is one of the great television shows of all time, even mm-hmm. though it was only four episodes. Yeah. Um, sadly. Sadly. I mean, like, what was that like working with Richard being part of that show? Well, of course, Paul Mooney, who was oh. my mentor, who discovered me uh, along Genius. with this woman, Lotus Weinstock, who was also a brilliant comedian and songwriter. The first night I got up at the Yee Little Club in Beverly Hills on Cannon Drive, um, Mooney got all the young comedians and performers on that show. And Richard, of course, was like, yeah, bring everybody because I'm going to need some help. And Paul was, you know, one of, was the head writer. And it was just fun. I mean... Richard was just such a sweet man. He was open and non-competitive and got a kick out of everybody and would stand there and laugh at people. What did you learn from him as a comedian? Just more than anything, his humanity and his ability to tap into his life and tragedy and sadness and be able to transform it constantly. You know, somebody to be a man of color of that generation, you know, beaten, denigrated, treated like, you know, a dog, uh, you know, and still rise above it. Of course, ultimately, it defeated him because I think the pain was too much, as it has been for Billie Holiday and countless others who have been brilliant. You know, how much can you take and how much can you process and still get up there and do it. What's your favorite moment from uh, the Richard Pryor show? I think um, 
Oh, when I played um, like Patty Hearst, I, th- I think I was, on, you know, and I got, I was like, right on, right on, brother, right on, and everybody's looking at me like, shut up, white girl, you know. So that was fun, and um, of course, you know, it was it was a great time for me because that was when I was starting out, and and Mooney would take me to um, to all the black clubs around L.A., the Parisian Room, which don't no longer exist, but did exist when I wrote, performed this song. Uh, there was a woman named Cam- Car- Carmilla de Milo who was the host, so she would you know bring everybody up, and so I based a whole piece on that. Um, but it was just incredible because you know if if you can stand up in front of a black audience and get laughs and not be booed off the stage, that's a powerful thing. Yeah, and of course you know to be underwritten and supported by the likes of Paul Mooney. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. You always had that thing, and Vibe did a whole thing about you early on about, uh, I mean, they sort of put it as like, you know, she's a black soul or something like that. But it's sort of like you're always sort of comfortable with a black audience and, you know, not sort of put off by that and like, hey, oh, I'm, I'm oh, one of you. Oh, contraire. Yeah. I mean, if anything, like I said, to be celebrated by – you know, the black by black culture is to me the highest compliment you could possibly Why? receive. Because without without the black artists and and music, we this country would be Nothing. like a fucking you know uh, <laughs> Irish um, river dance <laughs> shit show. Can you imagine what a nightmare? Oh God, help us, Lord, help us. No rhythm, no no emotion, nothing. Raw raw whiteness. <laughs> It's like like bleach sugar, it'll give you a heart attack, lead to dementia. <laughs> What'd you learn from Mooney? Because he's one of the everything, geniuses. Everything, everything. I, I learned to just be to be fearless, to say exactly what was on my mind, and not let you know the white patriarchy take me down, and fight against it, and be a warrior. And be a badass, yeah. And and just be filled with with strength and rage and love and fun and emotion and craziness, and you know, always keep learning and 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 reading and watching and observing, and that's something that you know I I have carried throughout my career. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door. Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy. And we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy. And I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer. Because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, 
and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, the podcast, wherever you listen. You had an amazing role in uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, King, King of Comedy, comedy mm-hmm. opposite De Niro and Jerry Lewis. Yes. And scene I never forget of you had taped up Jerry Lewis uh, to the neck. Everybody's dream. Oh, my. <laughs> and had him kidnapped and you're singing to him. Yeah. I mean, you know, and you were a younger artist with two super established yeah. stars yeah. and a legendary director. Right. How'd you, like, get up and just, just, just kill it in that role when you were like a baby and you're working with all these men who are like superstars. Again, like as with Richard Pryor, you, when you work with the, the, the best, you rise to the top. You know, they, they want you to be good. They wouldn't cast you if they didn't believe in you. And they want your freshness and your enthusiasm so that they have something to, to bounce off of. You know, they were both already seasoned. You know, obviously Jerry Lewis was well done. You can put a fork in it. Yeah. But, you know, even Bobby De Niro at that point had done a lot of stuff. And and people want to be around something something fresh and fun, you know, and you don't want to lose that enthusiasm. So I don't know. I felt right at home. And, and of course, the character was cloying and annoying and a pain in the ass. So it was crazy. It was and it was kind of who I was at the time. I mean, you're you are. Definitely an actor, but I uh, I see you as an actor who is kind of playing yourself and slight versions of yourself, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to an actor who's like a chameleon, you know. Mm-hmm. Is yes. that what you're going for? I don't think it's what I'm going for, but I think it's what I am. I think it's what I'm, I think it's my strong suit, you know. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess if I really put my mind to it, I could do something that was really different and I'd like to try that. But I mean, I always seem to get roles that are, you know, variations of who I am. So I'm not going to fight people on it. You know, so why bother? I think it's probably, you know, the the iconic status and that they like you so much that. Like, yeah. Come- they want me to bring me to the role. You know, yeah. why, why go find somebody who can't really do it if, if they have me to just step into it and just be. Be there and be ready to do it. God, but I, I can't leave the prior show alone. Just sure. behind the scenes were things like crazy because you're dealing with censorship and I'm yeah, sure you well, didn't expect it to be only four episodes. That was hard on on Richard. And that's when he started, I'm not coming. I'm not coming. I'm leaving. I'm walking off. I'm, this isn't, no, I can't. This isn't what I signed on for. Yeah. And I think that it. He just said, fuck, I don't need this shit, yeah. you know, and rejected it. And it just didn't pan out. And it became part of the show, right, when, they were the, when the pan out. Uh-huh, of, when like, he's, he's naked. Stand naked, but he has no, no <laughs> right. dick. Right, right. He looks like a Ken doll in yeah, the middle. Yeah, which is so brilliant. It's so brilliant. I know. It's such a perfect statement. You were also a big part of Roseanne, one of the biggest shows of the 90s. Yeah. Um, what was that like? Again, you know, it happened really just very organically. I was um, at my agent at the time, Sue Mengers, who was a legend in, in herself, uh, in of herself. And she had, she'd have these dinner parties at her house in Beverly Hills. And uh, Roseanne was there with her then husband, Tom Arnold. And I'd never m- met her because I was kind of out of the comedy scene by the time she came in. And and we started talking and she's like, I like you. You're fun. You know, you're fun. And about two weeks later, I got a, a call from them asking me to come on the show and do this, you know, play Tom Arnold's wife. In the first episode, we go to Las Vegas and Wayne Newton is there. And it's just a really funny, crazy episode. And then they wanted me to stay on, and we thought, how could we keep, you know, 
Nancy interesting. And I said, oh, maybe she ends up like running from the arms of Tom Arnold into the you know, arms of some woman. So that's that was how she became a gay, you know, a, a bisexual character. And that was not normal on television in the 90s no. at all. No. Was it shocking to people? I guess it I mean, I, I think they I think more f- funny than shocking because it was just so crazy. But I guess in, when you look at the world, I guess it probably was. I just never really thought of things like that. I just thought this will be, this will be a clever, fun way. And, and Roseanne agreed. But you like to shock. Yeah, I, I like to shock. I, I also just like to wake people up, you yeah. know, and offer them like another glimpse at, at life and how it can be. Were you part of the reboot? Of I just I did one episode when Roseanne was on that, you know, that season. I was. Um, if we can be honest, I was very hurt by her coming back as a Trump supporter. And I'm like, I kind of understand, but I'm kind of How could hurt. you understand? How could I understand? Uh, wh- 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 why would you think that, that she would ever do that? What, I, I mean, I assumed that's where her heart was. So, okay, fine. But I never thought it was. And I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. Because to me, she was friends with Paul Mooney. Yeah. Well, you know, she used Mooney as a writer at different junctures as well. And I was just like, where's this coming from? But some of the things that she said, right, and before she got in trouble and the things that she said that got her in trouble, <clears throat> I was not shocked to hear her say those things. Really? No. I, I was. Really? Yes. I mean, that was what the whole show was about. It was about working class people surviving and just accepting each other. I mean, I felt like... The '90s version was that, right? But I was not. I just wasn't sure. Yeah, but she'd already she'd already gone around the corner, around the bend when when they rebooted it. That's so, why I feel like why did they bother rebooting it anyway? What what was there to say? Just to, to pile on the message of hatred and, yeah. and and people going backward. I mean, so when she says something publicly racist and gets in trouble, like, are you shocked? What do you do? Are you upset? Are you calling her? No, like, no. No, I'm not calling her, but I'm terribly upset. Yeah, of angry, with, upset with her. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I don't even know what, what to say or how to approach it, or, or I wouldn't even know what to say if I, if I did call her. Yeah. You know, and I would, I don't want to get into a fight with her, so I don't call her, and I don't know, I don't know where her head is at. Yeah. I mean, I, think I mean, it- I know where it all sparked from. It all sparked from her worrying about the survival of, of Israel. And I was like, "What do? You, how could you possibly be worried about Israel? Israel's not going anywhere. I mean, nobody's ever going to come in from the outside and bomb Israel. Right. America will always support Israel, always. even if they demand that they find a way to find some sort of homeland for, for the Palestinians, which I think should happen. Yes. I felt that way for years. Yeah. Why? I mean, that's your jumping off place to be worried about and become a conservative? Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Well, I think that notion of a fear of the survival of whiteness has been critical to Trump and the rise of Trump and those who are with him. <clears throat> well, that's that's clear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you know anybody black who supports him? Yeah, do I do. I have a gay uncle in Massachusetts. Uh-huh. Married, older, all in. Yeah. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, what does he say? He How? says, uh, immigration, they're overrunning our country. And I'm like, that's not true. And he's like, we but- need law and order. And then he tells me some story about when I was young, the cop on the beat would knock you on the back of the head and say, shape up. And everything was good. We don't have officer friendly anymore. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. I agree. How old is your uncle? He's an older gentleman in his 70s. Wow. So he's really bought into the American, you know, sort of fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a Trumper during the primary. Wow. Way back. I was like. Holy shit. Right? I mean, like black and gay in Massachusetts. You you can't get bluer than that. Is his partner white or black? Uh, His partner's white. Uh-huh. I don't think his partner's with him because he uh-huh. kind of he's much quieter, but he kind of rolls his eyes when he starts talking his Trump stuff. So I'm not sure if he's with him or he's just tolerating right. it. But yeah. like, 
Uh, you know, I don't know. But, you know, yeah, you see a lot of people talk about like, well, this was our last chance to get it right, you know, because they're thinking like, oh, you know, black and brown people will be the majority soon. So then they're going to have what, like a string of Latino presidents and we'll never have another white president. <laughs> like, what is this fantasy of victimhood? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But I, wouldn't that be great if that was the truth? I'd love a bunch of Latino presidents. And <laughs> Taco so trucks on every corner. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Take me back to doing Letterman, what, 40 or 50 times? 30. 30 times through through the 90s? Yeah, because at a certain point um, when he moved to CBS, he only had me on once at CBS. Why? Because he cleaned. cleaned, Do something new. Yeah, he didn't want the the kids from the old show. Yeah. I mean, Tracy Allman wasn't on anymore. Yeah. um, Terry Gar. There's but numerous you, people that you had your own sort of way of relating to him. You'd come out and sing, I know. and you'd be like pulling him like along. And he's like, ah, you know, you're you're freaking me out. You're so cool. Can, you're kissing me like ah, you know. I know it was some. It was not not nobody had ever done what I did, and it was really heartbreaking when he stopped having me on, and I didn't understand it, and it haunted me forever. And I I don't know. I guess he was. I guess it was just too much for him. He was. He was just freaked out by it all. Really, he seemed freaked out, but I thought that was part of the act. But you're like, no. Well, I think for a while it was part of the act. But then I think that I think he was really upset that he didn't get the Tonight Show. Yeah. You know, at, at NBC. Yeah. So I think he felt like second fiddle at CBS, and I think everything just went haywire. So he was just like, then fine, I'll just blow everything out of the water and fuck it. But he ended up winning. I don't think it matters. I think that, you know, psychically, the idea of being in Johnny's seat was what he wanted. Yeah. And he deserved to be. Yeah. I mean, Jay Leno is not, can't even hold a candle to him. No, not comedically, no. No, No. or anyway. No, no. I mean, so I don't know. But when I did go on the show and I got to do my thing, it was some of the most fun I ever had. And nerve-wracking because, you know, I was really walking on on a high wire up there. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't my it wasn't my show, so I had to like kind of take over. You did, and yeah, I did. You, if you I was totally gonna, did. if I was gonna, you know, hijack the whole situation and make it work, I had to be fully committed. And that was, you know, that was a lot. It's a lot for you know a lady to come on with a guy like Letterman and do that. But I think most of the time it was successful. I think all the time it was successful, and like. So many other people, 99% of other people would come on and be a guest and be polite and promote their thing right. and leave. And you seem to see it as this is a performance. Right. Exactly. And I mean, in, why why shouldn't it be? Because how many times do you want to hear about somebody's book or movie or TV show or song? You know what I mean? It was like, let's just – because I would, I would come on quite often to talk about something or promote something. But I was just like, oh, who cares? I'm sort of that way still to this day. I'll be the last person to push myself because I just think, well, if it's good, it'll find its way. Well, you're pushing yourself but not your product. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm not even pushing myself. I'm just pushing my what I do as a performer. Yeah. 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 When you would go on there with Madonna, it was so – Well, that was only one time. Right. It was so – Yeah. So, that, was like, that was very special. That, that, that really came together in a very sort of crazy way and, and she came on with me and I felt like – I don't, I don't think anybody's ever done what we did again in that setting. And because I don't think anybody, I don't think famous people really have a real friendship. And, and, and then of course, it was also at a time when, you know, there wasn't social media. You couldn't, you, you couldn't really use it to promote yourself sure. in that way. So we were friends and it was fun. And, and, you know, and I said, come with me on Letterman. We'll, we'll, we'll be crazy. And, and it was crazy. It was crazy. It was you were crazy. dating. No. No? No. I always thought you were dating. Well, she made it seem like we were dating. Right. And then, of course, everything I said on the show made it seem like it was, but that was funny, too. Okay. No. No. We were not. We never dated. We I, were just friends. I thought you were. I mean, yeah, I, I, as a teenager, I'm like, I thought they were, and that's yeah. part of the whole thing of, like, they're letting us see this relationship. And no. as a as a country, we didn't really see uh, gay and lesbian relationships publicly like that. So that seemed very interesting and powerful as well. No. That, I mean, I... Sure, I would have liked to have dated her, but she wasn't. That, she wasn't that. She liked to toy with it. 
<laughs> but we had fun in well, spite of everything. What was she like? Because she was, she was rising. She was powerful, but she was rising then. What was she like? Well, you know, she only goes so far, you know, as emotionally. You know what I mean? She's the kind of person who kind of like keep, plays it close to the vest. But she was sweet. And there were, there, there were, I think there were genuine moments of conversation and, and friendship that, that meant something. I, you know, I don't, but then she doesn't want, she doesn't want to, she just ends friendships. That's just what she does. So your friendship is over. Oh, God, yeah. It's been over for years. Did something like happen? Yeah, yeah, but it's 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 irrelevant. It would yeah. have if it wasn't that, it would have been something else. Huh. I don't think she likes it when people get too close or start to get a little bit like too real with her. Yeah, you but, know? but you keep friends. Oh as, like, yeah, the sort of person you are, just like hold on to friends forever. Of course. Yeah. 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 I mean, if 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 the relationship is still evolving and you can be have that arc throughout your life of an old friend is there's nothing better yeah no i was very i was sad when we weren't friends anymore i genuinely like and i have seen her over the years and it's been fine but it it's just no she does she doesn't want to be friends yeah yeah you also would go on arsenio yeah and burn down the cameras there as well (laughs) but it's a different beast right he was not weirded out like no no he was in on the game yeah yeah he was Arsenio was like, he liked having fun with me. And I think it was like, yeah, it was a whole other avenue for him. Yeah. yeah that was that was a really special show. Yeah, really it was like- special. It was funky and black and cool and, you know, of of that moment. Yeah. What, 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 what years was he on? Do you remember? Oh, I can't God. remember anymore. It was the it – was, it was the early 90s because I remember being in college and watching it. And it would always be like you have to watch because there's going to be a surprise. You have no idea yeah. Magic Johnson's going to come out uh-huh. or, you know, <laughs> Rosie Perez is going to come uh-huh, out and uh-huh. they're going to kiss or whatever. Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't like – what does it say on the TV guide? Like it doesn't matter. Yeah, right, like, right. And especially the first like 15 minutes would be like, oh, my God. Yeah, and that was fun and the music was great and – it's what you, you know. It's what you want from you know television. On one of the Letterman performances, you said, "Suddenly, with the camera on me, I become bigger than life." I did. Yeah, yeah. And then you went into a song. Right? Do you remember what song? No, I don't. I wonder what song it was. But it definitely seems like you that, like you know, with the spotlight on you, you're like, "I yeah. will rise." Yeah. To- yeah, yeah. I, of course, I don't think there's a. A performer worth their salt that doesn't feel that way. Yeah. You know? And that's the great thing about, yeah, hair and makeup and a dress and you walk out and boom, you know? It's exciting and fun and glamorous. When did you first say, I want to do that, I want to be on the stage? I want to when I was five. Really? Yeah. What did you say? What did you think? What did I you said to, to my, my dad, who was a doctor, his, his um, partner's wife, Marlene Rosenbaum, she was boiling water. It was the only time I ever saw her cook. <laughs> And um, she says, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, a comedian. And she laughed. And I was like, no, I really do. I really do. At five. Yeah. What did you What did you see that made you say that? I, I guess it was probably like Carol Burnett or, you know what I mean, different things on TV. And I just, I already was like loving making people laugh. And I was singing and I was just like, you know, a little entertainer. But not obnoxious, not like the kids today, you know. Who actually go on YouTube and like gross people out? <laughs> I mean, I was just like a kid, like a little kid who like knew how to converse with people. Yeah. Do you take a lot from Joan Rivers? No, I didn't take anything from Joan Rivers. Really? No. Huh? Nothing at all. Joan Rivers was never an influence on me whatsoever. So, beside Mooney and Pryor, who are your big influences? Well, when I was really little, I've t- told the story very many, very many times, so it's kind of boring to me. I went to see Carol Channing in Hello, Dolly mm-hmm. um, at the Fisher Theater in Detroit when I was eight years old, and she was huge influence on me. Talk about bigger than life. That was really the person I based a lot of my early, you know, desires to be a performer on. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Mary Tyler Moore, I just love Mary because she was just so buttoned up and fun. And th- and that's going back to, like, the Dick Van Dyke show. I just love the sophistication. You know, I mean, I grew up in the Kennedy era. I was very, I mean, I was little, but, you know, I loved sophistication. And that was always really important to me. And looking good and, and being sharp and funny and 
you know, it was, it was, I grew up in Flint, Michigan until I was 10. So, you know, it was like all my, my parents' friends were like, they threw cocktail parties, they went to Vegas. I mean, it was like all that stuff was a huge, you know, inspiration to me. God, does this current state of Flint break your heart? Of course it does. I mean, I've been, you know, talking about it. I've had guests on my own radio show, Sandyland, um, several times. You know, the mayor of Flint was on, on, on the phone. Uh, Dr. Mona, uh, I always forget how to pronounce her name, ha- Hannah Atisha. She she was the um, um, the doctor who revealed the whole, you know, The um, lead issue with kids. She, she's a you know she's a, a um, doctor for kids, um, and so I, I've been on top of this whole thing since it started, and trying to do the best I can do to raise consciousness. And of course, forever appreciative of. Um, um, I'm losing my mind. I've done too, too many talk shows today. Um, on my own. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Who's my lady from MSNBC? Rachel Maddow. Yeah. Because she went to Flint right after the whole thing happened. Yeah. You can just edit all this shit out, all my flubs here. That's okay. Um, Which is rare for me. To flub. Yeah. No, I know. You're always on point. Yeah. You're always on point. But so I'm what, very disappointed. I'm kicking you out of my studio now. You're fine. You're fine. No, what, um, what, do, what do we need to do to get Flint right again? Well, I mean, in order to get the Midwest and the Rust Belt t- together again, we'd have to bring back industry. And I don't yeah. see that happening. Yeah. You know, and I don't know how many people from that generation or even people in their forties who worked in factories or, you know, were of that m- mindset could possibly learn a different right. trade. What are they going to do? Yeah. That's hard. I mean, I think they've tried to like introduce the whole idea of doing, you know, IT work and, you know, but, if your mindset, you got you got to be born into that 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 mindset. So I don't know what the answer is. I wish I did. It's painful because also driving jobs are slowly going away, right? And that will be another blow. That is one of the largest professions in America: driving trucks, driving cars, right? And that is going to be a massive blow to the lower middle class. I don't see that auto- automated driving coming to fruition. Ever? No, I don't. I don't know. I think we're going to see self-driving trucks probably in the next, what, five, ten years? Ten years on really? the outside? I mean, if you're an owner, like, why would you not? They never need to stop. They don't complain about wages, <laughs> you know, about fair wages. Well, you know, I know, but is it really – is it realistic that a truck could just drive forever on a highway and – I think so. I think, I think, I think computer – computerized cars – will have uh, an accident rate that is a, f- a fraction, I mean, like a millionth less than a human driver. Um, and people don't understand that yet. They're afraid of that. But like, oh, yeah, I mean, they have, you know, self-aware uh, technology of like, is anybody near me to slow down, stop, and like far safer than, you know. And- okay. I can't wrap my mind around it yet. <laughs> I would want to be in a car that was driverless. Really? Oh. But you'd be safer. Uh, would I be? Yeah. Than me driving my own car? Well, I don't know how you drive. <laughs> Maybe, you know, you might drive like my sister, 20 miles an hour. No, like, no, 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 no. I drive right, I, I keep with the flow. <laughs> I try to go as fast as I possibly can at all times. <gasps> so I'm not the safest person. I don't know. We'll see how it all goes. What? But, it, but, it, but, it, but it is an issue, and I don't know. And I, I'm, again, I, this is what also amazes me that people in the Rust Belt, in the Midwest, on farms where they can't sell their soybeans to China anymore, are still like, you know, saying they're going to support Trump. Yeah. <clears throat> this yeah. totally freaks my shit out. I don't, I don't get it. You're totally being lied to. But I think partly the media manipulation piece of Trump allows that to happen. You and I watch Rachel Maddow and yeah. Lawrence O'Donnell, and we understand what's really going on. Oh, yeah, we also read. Yeah, they're watching Fox, so they don't know what's really going on because yeah. Fox is not news. It's entertainment masquerading as news. Right. And they are told you can't pay attention to MSNBC because and the New York Times, they're lying to you. So they're sort of boxed in in terms of information, 
and they think, well, Trump is great and he's doing a great job and, you know, they hate him because they're liberals in a bubble and we understand reality. So, right. you know, let's vote for him again. Like, Well, we know. don't know yet. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and um, wrapping my mind around, um, of course, my choice is Kamala because I think she's amazing. I think she's the perfect combination of soulful, brilliant, tough, and, you know, ready. Yeah, yeah. No, I've known her for a long time. And Have she, you? Yeah, she is powerful, just like a powerful spirit, a really can-do person. Um, you know, I think she really cares about people. She's I not in too. it just for power, but, yeah. like, I can yeah. actually help people. Yes. And I don't think that the Dems should nominate somebody – just because they can punch Trump in the face rhetorically, but but I don't know. I don't. I totally don't think do that. Joe Biden can, especially after his performance on the on the first debate. I, I mean, know. he's very flat footed. I think she can. Yeah, no, she can, and I think she can do it in a way that does not debase herself. Yes, right? exactly. I remember Marco Rubio trying to oh, match my, with oh, him. No, God, and he she would never. Himself. She would never stoop to that. I mean, her attack on Biden was steeped in love and her own personal history and her love of herself as a child and like all these sort of righteousness. It wasn't like this political attack. No. And And I think she spoke up at the right moment with the right sensibility. Yeah. Yeah. I like Elizabeth Warren too. I like her. Not as much as Kamala. Yeah. Do you see a gay president in your lifetime? Sure. I do. I mean, I think my ideal ticket is Kamala and Pete. Yeah. Yeah. Pete as a vice president. Yeah, of course. I don't know. I mean, I'm wondering if America is fully ready. I didn't think we were ready for a black president. I think, I think we are more more ready than people. I, I just think at this point people just want people that are sentient, politically savvy, care, have heart, and also have a real take on how to, like, put this country back on track. I think Pete Buttigieg is an interesting – step toward that in yes. that I know he's gay. I totally support that. But when he starts talking, I think he's brilliant. I don't care. I don't think about that. I don't think about, I don't think about with any of these people. I don't, I don't think about Kamala as a woman or black or I just think about her as a brilliant person. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get back to performing. Give me some advice you would have for young performers who are like, oh my God, Sandra Bernhardt does everything. Like, how can I be more like her and perhaps have a career like hers. What what would you tell them? I don't know if it's possible to have a career like mine anymore. Mm. I think that things happen much too fast for people. I think they they go on YouTube, they put their you know their little videos and stuff out there and I don't I don't understand it. I don't I mean to me that's not how I want to interact with my audience. But just from the standpoint of as I've said, you go on stage and you are fearless and you are incendiary and these sort of things. Like, how does a younger performer get that for themselves? Well, you have to be – you have to educate yourself. You have to know what's going on in the world. You have to have a sense of history, you know, whether it's about film or television or, or literature or culture. I mean, you can't just, like, talk about what's happening right now. You've got to, like, look – you've got to be – you've got to have at the ready and in your toolbox – the overview of history so mm-hmm. that your work is diverse and not just, you know, talking about. Uh, what does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Thrivemarket.com slash Torre. 
On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know, something, you know, something stupid where you end up talking about, I mean, I don't even know, I don't even know what people are talking about anyway half the time. Right. It's very limited to me. I think, I think the, the more you know, the more you have to draw upon. Right. And I think that you also have to be somebody who puts themselves out there. You got to go, you got to go to clubs, you got to get up, you got to perform in front of live audiences and put yourself, you know, into the, into the thick of it. Yeah. I just rewatched um, Chris Rock's Tambourine, and he's not as funny as Chappelle, but he brings a depth of his own humanity and a probing of himself that Chappelle is not willing to do, talking about his porn addiction, talking about why he got divorced in very real and honest and powerful terms, Mm -hmm. and blaming himself Mm -hmm. for not being a good person within Mm -hmm. his marriage, and it's so powerful. And that sort of... Self-excavation is so powerful when a comedian can do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to be able to look at yourself and you got to be able to like, yeah, I mean, there's, there's different, you know, layers of who you are as a performer. And of course, it's very easy to be that top layer of just you know, the artifice of it all. But Mooney said the most important thing to me I ever heard in my life. You got to be, you got to peel each layer away as if you're an onion. Every time you walk on stage, you have to shed your skin. That was his thing. Burn hard, you have to shed your skin. Which means... Which means you've got to get closer and closer to the essence of who you are to tell your story. Because when you're willing to really go there, like you just said about Chris Rock, yeah. that's when not only is it funny, but it's there's humanity. I mean, and, and Tambourine with Rock, I mean, there's long stretches that aren't funny, uh-huh. but you're on the edge of your seat because this right. man is giving you like his real heart. Yeah. And that's what that's what you want. Who who is there? Who is a comedian who now, if you're at home in your pajamas at midnight, and I said so and so is going to going up in the cellar in an hour, and you'd be like, "I'll go with you." Like who who is that comic for you? I couldn't tell you because I rarely go to watch comedy. I'll, I mean, you might call me and say somebody's going on stage to sing, and I'll be there in a heartbeat. Who? Well, I mean, there's a million people. I mean, I, I guess right now, if you said, "Hey, Lizzo is doing," you know, Lizzo is doing like a, a little intimate set, I'd run out and run. Yeah, I love her. I, I mean, her. there's just, it, it, but that's just somebody that is of the moment. I yeah. mean, music has always been a much bigger influence on me than comedy, really, per se. That's your first love, more than yeah. The comedy. Yeah, yeah. I really wanted to be a singer, just yeah. a singer. Yeah, you know, I mean. But I think there's so many singers who have incorporated so much into their personas that I, you know, sort of base myself on much more so than than comedians. Yeah, comedy comes naturally to me. But again, like I said, I, I mean, it's got to have some sophistication. It's got to have like a groove. It's got to, you know what I mean? It's it's got you got to be able to tell a story. Yeah, and I think that singers just do that. Yeah. Tell me the difference between a good performer and a great performer. Well, a great performer is somebody who takes you on a journey, you know, from beginning to end and never lets down the whole time they're on stage. A good performer, they'll have moments that you go, oh, this was fun and this was cool and that sounded great. But you want to, like, take somebody on a full journey yeah yeah and really and there aren't a lot of those people no no well it's hard it's yeah of course it's hard yeah and it takes time to do the work to build up the set the act the performance be it songs or comedy or whatever right right the skills what do you what do do you want people to say about you when they have seen you do your thing did i move them yeah you know, to me, that's always the most important thing, that I got them to think about things in a different way. 
that I gave them a different approach to to life and looking at one another in a more human way and less judgmental. What is the what is it in you that has led to your success? I guess just just my 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 enjoyment of getting up and performing and doing what I do, you know, and and just being driven to constantly talk about things that are exciting for me now. And that's why it's always hard for me to do older material because mm. it's just unless it's a piece that's a little more timeless, but I don't know. I I just like to keep talking about new stuff all the time and in a new way. Yeah. Because I feel like I keep changing. I mean, when I look back at myself, you know, when I started out or my, myself during King of Comedy or all these years that, you know, I mean, I've been in a long-term relationship with my girlfriend for 20 years. I have a 21-year-old daughter. I mean, that all that stuff changes you. Yeah. And it, it gets gets into your heart and your thinking in a different way. Is your daughter in college? She is. Where? I don't – I never talk about no it problem. on air. Okay. But okay. she's in a very – Small, good, liberal arts college. 21? She's a junior? She'll, no, she'll be a senior. She'll be a senior? Yeah. How's it been having, I mean, I have babies going into what are seventh and fifth grade. So uh-huh. how's it been having a college woman under your? Well, you know, it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's never easy, honey, when you have like a super emotional, smart kid. I mean, She's taking, you know, she's trying to take on a lot and really be independent, but, you know, she needs us and I want her to need us, but sometimes you can't solve the problems. Yeah. And sometimes she'll present the problem and we'll come up with a solution and she'll fight you on the solution. So oh, it's, yeah. it's like, okay, well then fi- f- fucking figure it out and don't call me for a while. <laughs> I, if you don't want my answer, figure your own answer out. <laughs> I know. I love that. I love it. My son comes to me. I can't find... Any socks, and I'm like, well, go look in the dryer. No, I don't want to. Like, well, I mean, like, yeah, they want you to do everything, but then when you do it, they don't like the way you do it. Right, right. So that becomes like a whole other issue. So what starts off is like, oh, baby, what is it? And you go, just fuck off and call me later. <laughs> Basically, she call you for money a lot. Mm-mm. She doesn't have to. She's got our Amazon account. And, oh no! And a, and a um, an American Express card. Oh, so she takes care of it. But she's not. She's very respectful about money. What do you think she's going to do? I think she's life? going to be um, an art designer or set decorator on in film and television. Yeah. If she wanted to be a performer, would you be like great, or would you be like no, baby? You don't if want she this really life. had. The, the the desire, I'd say great, but she doesn't, thank God. Why does he thank God? Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't want my kid to go into the business now. Now? No. But the business that you lived through. I at, wouldn't want her to do it then either. Why not? Because it's hard. It's hard when it was hard then to be a woman and do what I did, you know? It was, you get beat up. In what way? Emotionally. And sometimes if, you, if it's really bad, you know, you get attacked. I, I'm lucky. I'm one of the lucky ones. Yeah. Because I think I was funny and able to, like, defend myself intellectually and just, you know, not get myself into situations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, I mean, you seem to have handled it with such a plum, such a hustler, being able to just roll with it through different mediums, different, different big ups. Yeah. Uh, you know, over and over and over. I mean, you've been part of so much legendary stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, I've had time in between to, to recover, too, because there have been times where I haven't – things haven't been going so well. Yeah. Or, I mean, that's, that's – of course, that's just how you look at it. It's a fallow times, you know what I mean, sure. where you're just like – but the one thing I've always kept doing is performing live, mm-hmm. no matter what else is going on or not going on. Is it easier for you as a person – to have an audience in front of you than to do a one-on-one conversation? Well, they're just different things. Yeah. You know, I mean, I wouldn't want to have a conversation with the audience, but I'm having one, but it's a one-sided conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's different. And and then you have to be in that that performance mindset. Yeah. But what we're doing right now is just, I'm, this is what I do all the time. I'm always explaining myself or, 
Which is good because it's like self-analyzing, you yeah. know? Save yeah. a lot of money and going to therapists. You don't go to therapists? No. Oh, wow. I have yeah. at different junctures when, you know, I was trying to figure things out, but not anymore. It drives me nuts. There's so much rejection in this performative industry. Even if you right. have an amazing career, you're still going to hear 100 no's. Yeah. And that doesn't get any easier. No, but it's sort of like you got, uh like I'll, I've written a lot of TV projects and gone and pitched them, and I pretty much know when I'm halfway through pitching that it's not going to fly, and I'm always like, okay, on on to the next thing. It just happens, you know. Yeah. But the good thing is, it's not you're not the only one it's happening to. Right. right. So you can't feel like you know you're being singled out. What do you think of? What do you want for your next like five years professionally? I really want to continue to to work in television and film and in 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 good roles that you know people have created for me like like pose um and just to be working. Yeah. I look at Janet Mock with such admiration and so you know and, and she's held up like, you know, oh she's an inspiration to trans people. No, she's an inspiration to me. Right, of of like here's Absolutely. this person who went after her dreams to just to, to live her real self, right, and then to create and get this show in the air and now have an overall. And I'm like, I, I, I want to be like you. Yeah. Well, she's she talk about somebody who's super super motivated. She is, and nothing gets in her way. She is on the move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. So, I mean, like, what drives you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, I like getting up in the morning. <laughs> I just like getting up. I like I have my routine. I you know, I drink my green juice, I take my probiotic. I have I have I have a, a, a routine throughout the day that keeps me very like motivated. What is the what is the routine? Can you Well, I, that's part of it. Getting yeah. up, doing what I do in the morning and reading the New York Times and talking to my girlfriend and taking our dog out, our dog dog George out for a walk and I love my dog. And then just going on from there, depending on what I have have to do that day. Yeah, yeah. I just like hanging out too. Just I'm a big hang, hanger out. I like doing laundry. I like cleaning. I like going grocery shopping. I like organizing. So I'll, I'm busy no matter what. What can you do as a performer now that you couldn't have done 20 years ago? Like, I'll tell you what I can't do. <laughs> <laughs> I can't use certain language or certain words that Paul Mooney would endorse me to say, and that's a bummer. Cause you I, mean like the N-word? Yeah. I mean, I understand why I can't say it. Because it's too sensitive now? Where you yeah, would, because you it's like, cause it I'm before. white and I can't say it. It was edgy before, but now it's too much. It wasn't edgy. It was just fun. It was just because it was like I was telling stories, yeah. you know? And I felt like I was part of the you know the experience, so yeah. I, could, I could use it because I was using it with love. Yeah. You know, and there's just uh, and there's just certain things, whether it's gender or this or that, or you know, everything has just been like, you know, yeah, we've gotten more conservative. Yeah, but also, but the people making it more conservative are the kids and the, you yeah. know, like my own daughter. You know, if I, if even if I sort of recounted a story where I said the, the N word, she, you can't even say it, telling that she'll start crying. I'll be like, uh, I'll be like, what, what the fuck? Cicely, do you know who I am? You know where I, the people I've hung out with? <laughs> she doesn't. She does, though, but it doesn't matter. But, and, and, and in a way, it's very, it's very touching and endearing because they really, the kids really care. What did it feel like when you used it and it worked? Well, it worked because I was telling stories about people that I felt, you know, were part of my world. Yeah. So I was telling like personal stories and funny about Mooney and Richard and yeah, yeah. but also just like friends, the community. You yeah. know what I mean? And it yeah. was like maybe I'm just maybe I was just like delude delusional or something. But I don't know. I and there were certainly black people who laughed too. Yeah. Did you feel like you know I'm kind of, I'm an ally. I'm kind of one of oh, y'all. Kind but, of so yes, I can use this because I was always forever talking and defending. Yeah. You know. My community, which I was very much a, a part of, my black community. Yeah. And it's always been very important to me. And, and, and I've always been respectful, but I, because of Mooney, I was just a part of it. Yeah. So it's hard, not, it's hard to like now separate in that way. Yeah. To just, just I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, 
I mean, think about the the fight that happened publicly around, remember the round table with Gervais, Rock, Louis C.K. and Seinfeld, and Louis C.K. was using the actual N-word, and people leapt over being mad at him and were mad at Rock for not shutting him down. And I'm like, he's a comedian, guys. That's like what they do. They're like, I'm going to push through barriers. I'm going to say what I really want to say. I'm not going to like hold in my words for you. Like, you know, I remember once uh, we had Susie Essman on my show on MSNBC and we were talking offstage about, you know, can can a rape joke ever be funny? And she's like, absolutely. Like you got to tell it in the right way, but anything right. can become comedy. Right. And you guys, as the comedians, are supposed to be breaking through the barriers. So when you say, what can I do now that I couldn't do then? Nothing. I mean, every, I've, I've done everything I ever wanted to do, and now I've had to, like, like excess fat, cut it away. So there is a little bit of frustration of not having the freewheeling time that I got to start out in. Mm. Yeah. But you find different ways to approach it. That's all. Yeah, it, it, may, it forces you to be disciplined in a different way. What are you going to do? Because there's too many racists out there and there's too many stupid people. So if you use certain language, they think that you're – you you mean something else, so it's not worth it's not worth the joke, right? Because it might hurt somebody. Thanks to Sandra for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. And tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garofano. Our editor is Brandon Tago, and our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment, and we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing guest because the man can't shut us down.